dear congregation, as we move into the preaching of God's word, there's something at the outset that I wanted to let you know. I chose this passage because I have found encouragement in what Paul says here, and I wanted to share that encouragement with you all as well. But as I was studying this passage, I also noticed the fact that there are a lot of hard truths in this passage as well. And it's no easy task to take the hard truths and lead to the encouragement that we have in Christ, how we might live it out. But when you do, I think that those hard truths can actually give us that much more wonder at God's love for us and at what he has done for us in Christ. So my prayer is that God would use this passage to encourage you in who you are in Christ. So with that in mind, let us look to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word, and we thank you for the great salvation that you have given to us in Christ. I ask that you would please bless the congregation, that you would please bless the word, that you would be glorified in this preaching, that Christ would increase and that I, your servant, would decrease, and that in all things you might receive the glory and your people might be built up in their holy faith. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I want to give you something to think about here, an interesting saying. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Again, it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Now, this statement comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 47 where Moses is preparing the Israelites to enter into the promised land. And he's reminding them of who they are as God's people and thus how they should live. And Moses' main point here is that when God has given his Torah, his law to the people, it is not sayings that seem profound but have no impact upon our lives. Instead, they touch at our, the very identity of the Israelites. It explains who they are and as a result how God has called them to live. And I mention this because many of us have heard the phrase justification by faith alone before. And I'm sure that we all know how important this phrase is. It's a key part of the gospel message. And in fact, as next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, it was one of the key takeaways of, of the Protestant Reformation. The reformers would declare sola fide, by faith alone. And while we know how important this is, and while we might know what it means, and also the fact that it pertains to us, we might wonder, how do we put it into practice? What does it mean for us to be justified by faith alone? What does it look like in the life of a believer. How do you know it when you see it? So if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. We will look at the first 11 verses where Paul answers this question for us. Now, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he has explained the fact that all mankind has fallen into sin and have earned his judgment. He has also explained the fact that God has given us Christ to be our Savior, both for Jews and for Gentiles. 
and also the fact that this is not received by our own merit, but rather by faith in Christ because of what he has done. So now in chapter 5, Paul begins to tell us what justification by faith looks like in our life. And as we look at it, I believe that it will build us up in our faith and that it will cause us to understand just that much more what we believe and what God wants to do in our hearts because of it. So hear now the word of the Lord, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Dear brothers and sisters, this is God's word, perfect and beautiful in all that it says. Now, at the very beginning, I think it would be good for us to define what justification by faith alone really means so that we all understand where it fits in this passage. To be justified means that we have been declared righteous. Now, at one time, we had been counted by our sin. Before we came to faith in Christ, that was what our identity was, the fact that we were sinners, the fact that we were guilty before God. And that's what all mankind, that's what all mankind is before they come to Christ. But when we come to faith in Christ, Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross, and instead he gave us his perfect righteousness. His righteousness was counted to us. So instead of being guilty, we are now not guilty. Instead of being unrighteous, we are counted by the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this is not something that we accomplished on our own work or even by our own willingness. It is something that God did for us in Christ and it all comes down to him. And this justification is something that we receive by faith, but even this faith doesn't come from ourselves. It is something that God creates in our hearts. He changes our hearts so that instead of being disinclined to God, as we all would be, 
Instead, we are inclined to him. If at one time we were dead in sin, if we are now alive in him, the reason why we can be alive is because someone else brought us back to life. And that someone is Jesus. And likewise, St. Augustine has said the fact that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them both the will to do good and the will to do evil, and they could choose. But when they chose evil, they lost their ability to choose what was good, namely, what would please God and the desire to do it from the heart. But, Augustine says, when we come to faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit has renewed our hearts, has turned our hearts from stone to flesh, now we are restored with the ability to choose what pleases God, to choose him from the heart. So now, instead of running from God, we can run to him. Instead of hating him, we love him. So you see, justification by faith alone is not just what happened to us. It's also who we are. If you believe in Christ, you are one who has been justified. It's a defining characteristic of who you are. And you see, the identity of a Christian is fundamentally different from the identity of a non-believer, which means that we can and should see a difference between the two. The very fact that we have been justified means that we have hope. We have confidence, and it's not a confidence that we muster up on our own strength. It's something that Christ has given to us. And it's not something that we can receive from anybody else. It's something that Christ alone can give us and that he does give us by faith. And this causes us to fix our eyes upon him. And as we do so, as we love God, as we see how beautiful and delightful he is, we can't help but walking in that confidence in knowing the power of being a follower of Christ. Oftentimes, you know a sports fan when you see one. You know a devoted, a devoted spouse when you see one. And you know a patriotic citizen when you see one. Because what is most important to you cannot help but come out. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. The fact that when we are justified by faith, People can see it in our lives, and we can see it in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul here is going to give us exactly what that looks like, how we are now different because we belong to Christ. So in this passage, Paul gives us two sets of cause and effect. Now, you know what cause and effect means. When A happens, it causes B to happen. See this pen? If I drop it, it'll fall. But it only falls because I dropped it. If I had an empty dish in front of me, the only reason why it would be filled with ice cream would be if I scooped the ice cream into it. And likewise, if I came up to one of you and told you that I had an unusually good day or an unusually bad day, what you might say to me is, tell me what happened. It's productive to look 
for the cause that led to the effect that you're looking at, but it's also proactive to think about the effect that you want and to discern the cause that will lead there, or even what we're aiming for. In fact, D.L. Moody once said that even worse than us fearing failure should be the fear of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. We want the cause to lead to the right effect. And Paul is telling us here that justification by faith alone is a cause which leads to good effects. And we want to see what those intended effects will be. First, justification by faith causes us to have peace with God, which gives us a specific outlook upon life. That's why verse 1 begins by saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Cause, God justifies us by faith. Effect, we have peace with him. How so? Because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure that most people long for peace. And when we don't have peace within this world, it's because we live in a fallen world. Now, there's a movie that I like called God's Not Dead, A Light in the Darkness. And in this movie, there is a guest appearance by the band Newsboys. And they explain the fact that when you think about peace, you can think of it like a cross. There is a vertical dimension, my being right with God. There's also a vertical, horizontal dimension, my being right with my fellow human beings. And right at the center of the cross is Jesus. He is the one who causes peace with God and peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is specifically dealing here with the vertical dimension, our being right with God, and the fact that Jesus is the one who accomplishes that for us. Now, it's very important to know where peace comes from. Because we can't have peace when we're estranged from God. That's why the prophet Isaiah said twice in his book the fact that there is no peace for the wicked And it's also why the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel would get so concerned when false prophets would say, peace, peace, when there was no peace, when God's people refused to turn back to him to repent of their sin, the very thing that would be necessary to have peace. And in fact, all they could expect was the opposite, a continued lack of peace. But... If our sins have been forgiven, then there really can be peace between God and us. That's why Isaiah would also say, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. And likewise, even though we might be recipients of Christ and of his peace, there may be times where we don't feel that peace if we have run ahead of God like a little child might run ahead of his parents, or if we have stopped paying attention to what God has been telling us 
And when we feel this lack of peace, it's really a call for us to put our attention back on Christ, to come back to him, to hear him, and to remember the fact that we are saved because of what he has done for us. And he will remind us of that peace and enable us to enjoy, to bask in the peace of knowing God as our Savior. Now, peace has three side effects of its own. Not only does justification by faith lead to peace, but this peace will mean three things in our lives. First, at the beginning of verse 2, we read, Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to the place where we can stand firm. Now, this is a theme that John Bunyan picks up several times in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, he does this three times. Because at the beginning of Christian's journey, he begins by falling into the slough of despond, a muddy swamp, which talks about really the fears and the hopelessness that people have in their own self. And remember that at this point, Christian still has a big burden on his back. So he's being pulled under in the swamp. He can't pull himself free, though he tries to get to the other side. And in his fear, he didn't see the fact that there were steps placed for him to walk on. But then we see a character named Help, who grabs Christian by the hand, pulls him out of that muddy swamp, and puts him on land, giving him a firm place to stand. Later, Christian is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and it's a narrow pathway where on one side you have this deep ditch, a drop-off, if you will, and on the other side you have another dismal swamp. And even though Christian doesn't fall in this time, the narrator tells us that King David did fall into this swamp, and he almost drowned within it if it weren't for the fact that God pulled him out. That's why David said in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set my feet upon a rock, giving me a firm place to stand. And then the last place is at the very end of Christian's journey. He and his friend Hopeful can see the celestial city, which represents heaven. But there's one thing left between them, the river of death. And there is no other way to get to the celestial city except by going through that river. And they ask the question, is the river equally deep everywhere you go? And they're told, no. As you trust in God, you will find that the river is more shallow. So the two of them walk in, and at first Christian is bobbing in the water. He can't find the bottom. He is weighed down by his fears. But Hopeful encourages him, don't lose heart, Christian. I can feel the bottom, and the bottom is good. And even though Christian keeps floundering in the water, Hopeful is holding him up and speaking these kind words to him, these words of reassurance. And that is when Christian finally feels the bottom. He finally has that trust in the Lord that helps him to walk 
the rest of the way. He was given a firm place to stand. And all of this is meant to point to the fact that we have a firm foundation in Christ. Even when we feel like we might stumble or fall, God is there to give us a place to stand. And because of the grace that he has shown us in Christ, we have that firm place to stand. As the hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And since it's grace, it really doesn't depend upon our own strength, our own worthiness, or our own obedience, but rather it depends upon the God who gave us that grace. Jesus is strong, Jesus is worthy, and Jesus is obedient. And because we belong to Jesus, God looks at us as though Jesus' strength, Jesus' worthiness, Jesus' obedience were ours, because that's who we are now. And there are two, there is a second and a third side effect, which both call us to rejoice or to take pride in something related to our faith. Now, as we talk about this boasting, it's important to know what we're boasting about. We're not boasting in ourselves, but rather we are boasting in the fact that we are God's, the fact that he has chosen us, the fact that he would love us. That's why both Paul and Jeremiah said that far be it for us to boast in anything except for God. And the intended effect of this is not that we would think how great we are, but rather that we would be humbled at the fact that God would love us, the fact that he would choose us, the fact that he would give us his righteousness in Christ. So the first thing that we take pride in is the hope of the glory of God. We are headed towards something wonderful. God is glorious. And when God makes all things new in heaven and on earth, we will see his glory and he will also glorify us as well. And what a remarkable thing that is to look for the fact that in heaven, everything will be made glorious and we will take comfort in the fact that God is ours and that fact that we can see his glory and the fact to a limited extent, he makes us glorious too. But then Paul takes an interesting shift because sometimes it can be hard to think about the eventual glory and goodness as we look at the pain and trouble in this world. And there may even be times where people look forward to that glory because it means the end of that suffering. And mind you, it is valid for us to realize that this present suffering and trouble is not the way things were meant to be. And it's not the way things will be. And yet, Paul tells us that as Christians, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, why would we take pride in our sufferings? Why would that be something to rejoice in? The reason why, and the only reason why, is because the God who is in charge of it all, 
he takes everything, good and bad, and he works it together for a good purpose. In fact, Martin Luther would say the fact that our sufferings and our troubles as Christians are not because God is against us, but rather because he is for us. And what is he doing? He is working something within us, which involves multiple steps. Here is the good purpose. First, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Whenever you do something hard and you work at it, you keep going, you don't give up. It could be lifting weights. It could be practicing an instrument. It could be preparing a new recipe or practicing mathematics. As you persevere, as you don't give up, it helps you to build character. It gives you endurance. And you get to the other side eventually, and it becomes easier. So now, this endurance produces character. It proves who we are on the inside. Now, if someone has a character flaw, it is within the person. And even though it might only come out at certain times, it was there the whole time. But by the same token, when we have these sufferings and it brings out the good within us, it's proving the fact that our good reputation is real. It proves the fact that we really are that way. And then finally, that proven, tested character produces hope. It gives us hope that we truly belong to Christ. It gives us hope that all the benefits of knowing him are ours because he also faced suffering and he saw it to the other side. That is what God is working in us when we face suffering. He is building hope within us and a kind of hope that will not put us to shame a kind of hope that is guaranteed, one that we can bank on. That's why we rejoice in our sufferings. And Paul says this as one who knows what it's like to suffer. He had a hard life, and yet he chose to look beyond the sufferings to God and actually to rejoice in the very God who is working it for a purpose. And as we look upon Reformation Sunday, in fact, many of the reformers faced suffering as well as they stood for the gospel. Martin Luther was an outlaw who had to hide in a castle for a while. John Knox had to serve as a galley slave. John Calvin was forced out of Geneva several times. And Lady Jane Grey, as a teenager, was pronounced queen as a way to try to keep Mary Tudor off the throne. But again, as a teenager, and because of her faith, she faced imprisonment and death. And now I'm sure that all of these people felt the weight of what it was like to suffer. And yet they bore up with it because they belonged to Christ. And I'm sure that there may have been times where they didn't want to go through it, where they wished it could end. And if you ever feel this way, you are in good company because Jesus himself didn't want to go to the cross. In fact, he asked God if there would be any other way. And yet he submitted to the Father's will. He saw it through to its end. 
Maybe you want to believe all of this, but it's hard. Maybe you think about the fact that your suffering is so great, and how could it possibly fit within a good plan, a valid question, and one that's hard to answer? But the very God who would give you that suffering is also the one who will work it through for a good purpose and who will walk you through with it. When you face a trial, it's as though he is telling you, if I am with you as I have promised that I will be, I will give you the strength to do this. You can do this through me. Will you trust me in it? And likewise, there may be times when we're not facing trials or troubles. And it could be easy to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you in that trial. But then when the trial comes, it's as though God is telling us, I want to prove that in you. I want to bring out the fact that you really mean what you say. I want you and others to see just how much you love me and that strength that I am working in you. In either way, we can trust him in our hardships. And because he is working something beautiful, something even more beautiful than our trial is hard, this gives us reason to praise him. So this is a hard truth, but in the end, it's a good one. Now, we have seen this first cause and effect relationship. We have seen the fact that justification by faith leads to peace with God. And the fact that that peace with God means that we have access to grace, we have joy in hope, and we have joy in suffering. But before we move on, Paul wants to stop us for a second and tell us something important, the very reason why he can say such things. We mustn't go further until we hear this, namely, that justification by faith hinges upon God's love that he showed in sending Christ to die for sinners. If you are a Christian, then you are loved by the best lover of all, who loves you simply because he wants to. You see, when God saved us, he was helping the helpless. The text says that when Christ came to atone for our sins, it was while we were still weak or powerless but we were given a strong and perfect savior. God sent Christ at the right time, the very time that God had appointed. And Christ died so that the ungodly could be brought back to God. Think about that irony, the helpless being helped, the ungodly being brought back to God and being made godly. That's why the Reformation stressed the fact that salvation is not our work at all. There is nothing that we did to save ourselves, and the reformers were wary of any suggestions or even implications that would suggest that we did anything in our salvation. But when we see just how needy we are, just how far we have fallen, just how much we don't deserve grace. It gives us that much more wonder at the fact that God would love us, that he would give us that grace as a gift, fully and freely. This reminds me of a children's book 
written by R.C. Sproul called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. It's about a priest named Jonathan who was given the opportunity to preach before the king, and he was given a new blue robe when he was ordained. But as he was on his way, he fell into the mud, and the mud covered his new robe. And when he came before the king, he was not able to give his sermon. But the king said that he would give him another chance, but only if he could get a clean robe to wear. But here's the problem. When Jonathan got home, he tried his best to hand wash his garment. But it just made it worse. And in fact, it was now brown, not blue. And he tried to take it to the fuller, but the fuller could not clean it. He tried to go back to the bishop to ask for another robe, but the bishop could not give him a second one. The only one who could help him was the great prince, the son of the king. And the prince told him to go before the king, still in his muddy robe, because when he did so, the prince came and gave him his own royal robes to put on, and he took those muddy robes for himself. And because Jonathan was wearing these royal robes, he was now able to stand in the king's presence. But in response, Jonathan said that he would walk in obedience and that he would do right because he wanted to be good enough to wear the clothes. And that's where the prince reminded him, you can't be good enough, Jonathan. All you can do is trust in my goodness as you wear my clothes. And that's exactly what Jonathan did. So it is with us. We were not saved because we were righteous. We were saved because we were sinners and because God loves sinners. Paul explains that it's rare for someone to die for a righteous person, though perhaps they might do so for a good person. And commentators disagree on what the difference is between a righteous person and a good person. But the point is the fact that usually if one would die for another, it's because that person deserves it. But would a person die for someone who hates him, for his enemy? And as we think about this, we think about the fact that there's something wrong when a veteran is wounded in battle and he comes home but is not able to find a job or support, or when he's killed in battle but everyone forgets about him. We realize that there is something off, and it's unbelievable to think that someone would give their life for someone who didn't deserve it. And yet, that's what God did for us in sending Jesus to be our Savior. That's why Paul says that for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything to deserve this love or forgiveness. And guess what? God loved us even before we loved him. And that is true whether a believer has known Christ for all his life. One of the benefits of being brought up in a Christian home. Or whether he scoffed at God for a long time before finally God did that 180 in his heart. But either way, God loved you first. And he saved you because he had compassion upon you. He saved you because he wanted you to be known not 
for your sin, but for Christ's righteousness and for the good thing that he would do for you. And this means that the life that you now have is substantially different than it would have been otherwise. And along with this salvation, God has given you confidence that you can face this life as God's beloved and forgiven child. So Paul has made this point. He has reminded us of the fact that we have been saved because we are sinners and because God loves us. And that our justification by faith hinges upon this very fact. So now we're ready to see that second cause and effect that I had mentioned before. Justification by faith causes us to have the assurance that we really are saved, which leads us to rejoice in God himself. Specifically, the cause and effect relationship is the fact that we are saved from divine judgment. So in verse 9 we read, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Cause, God justifies us. Effect, we don't have to fear the final judgment. How so? Because Christ died for us. All God's enemies have what they have coming to them. And at one time, believers were in that same camp. But when Christ died for us, he came to turn our classification from being unrighteous to being righteous instead so that we don't have to fear the judge anymore. Likely, we've all felt the shame of knowing that someone was disappointed in us because we had done wrong, or the fear of knowing that we deserve punishment. If we feel this way about a human authority, how much more so would someone feel this way about an infinite God, one who sees everything, nothing escapes his notice, and... An infinite God demands an infinite punishment. But if we belong to Christ, this turns around. Since nothing escapes God's notice, all of our sins have been forgiven. Nothing has been left uncovered. And since Jesus is truly God and truly man, he was able to give us, he was able to pay in full our penalty. And that's why the Reformation heralded that our works can't justify us, only Christ's work. And Christ's work does it all. So then Paul continues at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We have touched upon before what it means to be loved and to be saved even while we were still sinners and at enmity with God. We have seen that it was Christ's death that reconciled us to himself. But the text now says something new, the fact that it's not only Christ's death that reconciles us, it's also his life. Now, in trying to explain what that means, Colin Cruz, in his commentary on Romans, gives two options on what it means to be reconciled by his life. Either it means that we now share in Christ's resurrection life, or it means that Christ lives to be our advocate, to intercede for us. And Colin Cruz prefers the second option, but I would say 
that it's a both and. The fact that both are true. And we can see this in Paul's letter to the Romans. Because in chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's very much like the first option. But we also see later in chapter 8, verse 34, where Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And that brings together the second option. So while it's often good to see if one might be more dominant than the other, I really don't think we can separate the two. Christ lives, and he causes us to live. And all the way to the end, he stands up for us. He brings to remembrance the fact that we are saved, that our sin no longer characterizes us, but rather Christ's righteousness. And earlier, I had shared from R.C. Sproul's story, The Priest of Dirty Clothes, but I wanted to leave one detail for now. For you see, when Jonathan first came in to the king's court with his muddy robe, there was a man there named Malus. Now, Malus is the Latin word for bad or evil, and he hates priests. So when he sees Jonathan with his dirty garment, he begins to derail the fact that this man cannot stand in the king's presence. But when the king begins to speak, even Malus has to be quiet. And later... When Jonathan comes back in his still dirty garment, Malus begins to heap curses upon Jonathan. But then, when the prince comes and he gives Jonathan his robe, there's nothing more that Malus can say. And the same is true for us in Christ. If you belong to Christ, there is no outstanding guilt that the enemy can point at. Christ silences the accuser so that now you are known for being righteous. You are forgiven, and that's final. And this leads to our climax, what everything is leading toward in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Not only do we rejoice in the salvation that God has given us in Christ, but we also rejoice in the very God who gave us that salvation in Christ. And we rejoice in him because we are united to Christ. And again, it's not because of anything we've done, it's because of what Christ has done for us. So the final result of our justification would be that we would come to love God better, that the most important thing about us would be our association with God, and that the thing that we would love most about life, both now and in the one to come, is the fact that we will know God for eternity. And this pulls together everything that we have said thus far. Because we are justified, we have peace with God, so that now we can experience a loving relationship with God. We have access by grace to the faith by which we stand, and we can rejoice in God for allowing us to stand. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that God is working it together because he loves us. So he deserves the credit 
and the thanks for that. We rejoice in God because he loved us while we were still sinners. The fact that he helped us while we were helpless. And now we have a chance to love him too because he has poured his love into our hearts. And even our love for him is something that he creates in us. We don't have to fear the judge anymore, but rather we can know him as our father. We have the perfect defense attorney who is completely committed to our case and whom we can love just like we love the judge. So what else do we have to do but to be fully enraptured in the fact that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is ours, that he loves us, that he has saved us, that he is our greatest treasure, what else do we have? And this leads back to what I had said at the very beginning about the fact that justification by faith is no empty word for us. It is our very life. It's not just something that we affirm to be true. It's what defines who we are and as a result, how we live. Since we as Christians have been justified by faith, we have a confidence that only God can give us through Christ. And what he's done for us cannot be undermined because nothing can happen without God's hand guiding it. There is nothing that we might need for doing God's will that he won't give us. And I would say that as we draw closer to God, as we know him for who he is, we will find him to be much more delightful. We will rejoice in the fact that God is our father, that Christ is our savior, and that the Holy Spirit is within us. So it's with good reason that John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Have you ever experienced before the fact that as you spend time with someone, precisely because you want to be with that person, not only do you draw, does your relationship strengthen, but also you come to want to be with this person even more than before. And likewise, when we take steps of obedience to Christ, and as we know him, we find it more easy and more enjoyable to do so. With this in mind, as we put this into practice, as we live out justification by faith alone, as we see what Christ is accomplishing within us, I want to encourage each one of us to give Christ our full attention to make sure that he is the first love of our lives and that there is no corner of our heart that is left untouched by Christ. And when that is true, it builds an irresistible, contagious kind of love that people will see. And the world needs to see this from us. They need to see the hope that we have. This world is full of anxiety and fear. It's full of a lack of peace with God and man. And people, though they try to find satisfaction in life, they can't find it, and yet they continue to keep trying to find it and keep doing all that they know to do. And some people have wondered why the church, why people are seen disinterested in Christ. 
And I say there might be two reasons for this. One, because ultimately it's not because of us. We can share the truth. We can be available for people to answer questions and to shine the light of Christ. And yet in the final analysis, it's not up to us. Just like it's God who opens our hearts, so it is God who opens their hearts. So ultimately, it's God's work. But I'd say there's one other thing for us to consider. Does the world see Christ in us? They need to see Christ shining through us. They need to see that Christ actually makes a difference in our lives, that when we talk the Christian talk, that it's not just good things to say, but the fact that really we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the fact that what Christ has said really does make an impact upon our lives. Because when they watch us and when they know that we're Christians, they're going to evaluate Christ within us. Do we live out what it means to love others above ourselves? Do they see that we rejoice in the good and turn away from evil? Do they see that we have a genuine compassion for the lost? And do they see that we look beyond this world and all of the problems and the distractions to see God and the way that he interprets everything and to look for his eternal kingdom? Is that what's most important to us? Can people see Christ in us? And to bring this home, one of my favorite Christian speakers is Francis Chan. And one thing that I really love about him is the fact that you can see Christ within him. The fact that he has this contagious passion and joy about him for Christ. And I recently watched a video by him in which he was talking about the fact that if we live for this world, if we live for ourselves, we will lose our lives. But if we give our lives for Christ... He promises that we will find it. And so we should live that kind of life that is not about this world, that's not about finding satisfaction in the here and now, but in finding great satisfaction in God. And he makes the claim, can it be possible that something so outrageous could be the norm? Could it be so true that the power of walking with Christ and of being in tune with him could actually be something that we see in ourselves and in each other. And I would say that the answer is yes, because dear brothers and sisters, God has indeed called us to something different. He has restored peace between us and him through what Jesus has done. And he has given hope for us within this life and in the one to come. We are not alone but rather we are loved and held by a loving Savior. And in fact, Paul, in another letter, would tell his son in the faith, Timothy, that God gave us a spirit not of fear, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control, from 2 Timothy 1.7. And since this very Holy Spirit is within us, the Holy Spirit who gives us power, the Holy Spirit who gives us love, the Holy Spirit who gives us self-control, or as some translations say, a sound mind. Let us live like this. 
Let us show the world that there is indeed something different about us, that God is not someone to run away from, but he is someone to run to. The fact that he truly is the most important thing in our lives and that we find joy in him. And as we do this, we will see problems and troubles in this world, and it's right for us to care. We don't have to be indifferent to them. But at the same time, we look at them through the eyes of faith, and we know that God gives the answer. And likewise, we ourselves will have suffering in our lives. And it's okay to feel the pain and the hardship of it. But this is not the status quo. That's not the end. God is working it for a purpose. And we can indeed have confidence in the fact that he walks with us from point A to point B, from beginning to end, every step of the way. So as we think about living in this confidence and shining the light of Christ, I would sincerely ask that you would pray that God would make this more true of me, as I pray that God would make it true for each one of you and for the church at large. In the final analysis, when justification by faith alone is doing its work in our hearts, it makes us strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It causes us to love the God who loved us first, who reconciled us to himself, and then to proclaim that reconciliation to others so that they too might come to Christ. And when we do so, it proves to the world that the gospel, justification by faith alone, is no empty word for us, but our very lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the power that you offer us in Christ. We thank you for the fact that you have redeemed us, reconciled us, washed away our sins, and the fact that it has nothing to do with us, but rather because of you, because you sent Jesus to be our Savior, and because you sent the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to you. So, Lord, I ask that you would please fill all of us to praise you as you deserve, to look to you as our best friend, as our master, as our father, as the one who means more to us than life itself. And may you receive the glory, and may others see a true representation of Christ within us for his glory and for the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.